Hello and welcome to the Rugby Show here in the 42.e. We're live from our newsroom here in Dublin. My own name is Gavin Casey and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Mr. Eddie O'Sullivan. Eddie has tricks. Good, thanks. We uh, probably didn't expect to have a third test that we could actually look forward to with feverish anticipation. I know last week you and I were reasonably pessimistic with the Lions' chances, but they uh, got it done in the end. They did, yeah, yeah. Probably not the way everyone expected, but they got there. That's all that matters. I mean, I don't think anyone now is going to worry about last week. It'll be all about, you know, it's one all. Uh, can the Lions pull this off? A massive, big surprise. Nobody said going down they were going to do it. Everyone hoping they might put themselves in position. They are in position now, seeking if can they do to finish the job, you know. Yeah, big time. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from you guys at home or wherever you're watching. Keep the comments uh, flying in. If you've got questions for Eddie, do let us know and uh, I'll put them to him here. Uh, but one of the first ones, or one of the first issues I wanted to ask you about Eddie myself was the, uh, I suppose there's almost like a, a divide um, or a debate about the All Blacks being down to 14 men. Some of the naysayers would say like, well the Lions only won because the All Blacks were down to 14 and then other people were saying, well this is still the best team in history against a scratch team that have been together for seven weeks. Whether you have 14 men or not, you, you should probably be prepared for that scenario. What's your own take on it? Where do you come down on, on that side of the uh, I think it's very hard to say that losing Sonny Bill Williams is not a factor in losing the game. Um, and there's real reason for that. I think the All Blacks played well without Sonny Bill. In fact, in this third quarter, they dominated because they were able to get on the front foot a bit. Um, they were able to hold on to the ball. And probably the biggest factor was the Lions were sloppy in their discipline. And that's what kept the All Blacks in the game in the third quarter and they actually stretched it out and it was looking pretty grim but I thought once the Lions got the first try you could see the whole momentum change the whole uh, thing in terms of the Lions being more energised and, and the All Blacks begin to feel the pressure coming on and I think it did tell in the end now I think there's two dimensions to this one is if you look at the discussion around the 10-12 uh, axis for the Lions you know Sexton um, been a 10 and and then you've, you've why that dynamics worked uh, with Farrell everyone says it did and, and the argument is it did because they they moved the ball very well they got two very good tries probably where it's not wasn't really tested is in the defense and that's where I think the All Blacks would have looked for that trade-off that Sonny Bill Williams would have really tested that channel uh, and I think of course with him going off that channel wasn't tested so on the upside yeah that's tactic of getting the two first and second by eights to move the ball uh, did work but defensively it wasn't tested and, and with Williams off that was always off the table. The other side of it then I suppose is if you're looking at it in terms of Williams being off the field from a defensive point of view like the Lions defence was was excellent and as Murray Kinsler showed on, on the website a number of times how the Lions got off the line and they were able to slow the ball and the All Blacks looked at nowhere to go. It's a good reason for that. If you just do the basic numbers right so think about it this way, you have 14 defenders, 15 attackers, that means the Lions can commit an extra tackler into that front line to stop the, 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 the All Blacks getting over the gain line. The All Blacks couldn't get over the gain line and got driven back, it's a slow ruck, so they pour four players into that ruck, the ball carrier plus three. Yeah. So there's four players on the ruck now, so there's only 10 attackers left. The Lions put one into the ruck, they've got 14 defenders left, they put three in the backfield, they still have 11 defenders, and even with Murray sweeping, they have 10 on 10 on the front line. And you've got no kicking game from the All Blacks You can't kick into the backfield, there's three full backs, you've got 10 against 10, and the Lions have won the collisions, a slow ball, and then the next pass, the Lions come flying up off the line and smash them again, and smash them again. And that dynamics was set on the basis that 
the Lions defended well, but it's much easier to defend against 14 attackers than against 15 because you don't have as many compromises, as many trade-offs. And there's lots of times where the Lions didn't have to drift defend. It was man-on-man, -man, and that's a massive advantage. And I think you can't take that out and say, oh, that didn't matter. It didn't matter because eventually, to be fair, they pretty much they look pretty toothless the All Blacks, and that was because the Lions were able to get off the line in numbers. They weren't short in the corners and brought massive pressure. I think that's a factor. You can't take that out of the equation. Um, so I think, look, if you look at it overall and say, oh, no, Sonny Bill, it didn't matter, and they're a great team. You can say categorically, if Williams had stayed on the field, the Lions would still have won. I think that's a that's a fair comment. Maybe they might have, but it would have been a lot more difficult. For sure. I mean, what about that, that penalty that actually did bring the winning of the game for the Lions? I know we spoke about it a little bit on News Talk last night, but it, a bit of an anomaly now when you've got a player receiving the ball yeah. and he jumps. It was, it, was never, it was never an anomaly before. And the law as it stands is if you jump out of a tackle as a, as a ball carrier, it's a penalty against the ball carrier. Because, again, the logic to that is if you're allowed to jump out of a tackle, it's dangerous play. You catch a player on the face with your boot jumping out of a tackle. And I've seen penalties awarded for players jumping out of tackles. It's very rare because people never do it because you know it's a penalty. It's kind of this anomaly has come in on the back of protecting the ball carrier in the air. Now, back in the day, you could play the ball carrier in the air, but we've all said this is a bad idea. Fellas are going to land our head. Let's take that out of it. Mm. And we've gone out protecting the ball carrier in every circumstance. Uh, it makes sense to protect him in the air. Even in the tackle now, uh, if you know you go in and you try and make a tackle but you have to slip up, it's still a penalty. We've got to protect the player. And we've now got this anomaly in the, ta in the tackle on the other side of it, is that if I receive a pass and I jump in the air to catch it, the defender can't tackle me anymore. So what's he do now? He just lets me go. And that's an anomaly. And we've seen players milk that in the air, where they're coming down, they're about to get smashed and they tuck their knees and they get that extra half-second hang time, and if they get hit, it's a penalty. You'll see players now, I think, saying, oh, I'm going to get hit here, so I'm going to jump and take the ball, and what's the defender do? So we've a little anomaly in here, and Kieran Reid was interesting. He said to, to, uh, to the referee, you know, he says, well, so the next time, you know, after the penalty, the next time I receive a pass, if I jump, no one can tackle me. And the ref said, go away. Yeah, well, it, it was you probably know, a fair point from Kieran Reid, though. It I mean, was a very fair point. When you think about it, are we going to get to a situation now where if a game is at a deadlock with three minutes to go, you've got the ball, do you play the pass a little bit higher to, your, to well, the man outside you? Well, we know, no, if the game is tight and there's the last couple of minutes you need a penalty and you're carrying the ball, makes sense to duck into the tackle when you're being tackled because if it's not your fault if you get tackled by it's the tackler's fault he's got to adjust to you so if you can see that creeping in and that side of the game uh, and players kind of tucking their knees to get more hang time on the high ball well it makes sense that some players are going to go you know what yeah i'm going to jump for this pass and hopefully someone tackles me so like now to be fair these things emerge as the game develops mm. because there's nobody there's nobody in, in the in world rugby trying to set this up they're saying let's make it safe for the ball carrier but in that situation, there's an anomaly around it that the ball carrier has an advantage now by jumping to take a pass and can't be tackled. I think they're going to have to address that if it starts occurring. But as you know, it's a matter of time before players figure these things out themselves. Yeah, big time. Kyle Sinclair might have uh, discovered something by accident there. I don't think there was anything cynical in what he did. but uh No, I think Sinclair did the natural thing. The ball was why he jumped for it. The all-black player came in and made the tackle because he had to tackle him. But he was, happened to be his feet were off the ground. Referees to the penalty and that's the Hess game. That is it. Yeah, we've got a couple of questions. Uh, one from John Kidney for you, Eddie. He says, with Sexton and Farrell starting, would you go for a 6-2 split on the bench with two locks or back rows? 
for extra ballast in the last quarter. Lovely wording there from John. He should be asking these questions <laughs> instead of me, I think. <laughs> um, with all splits and all selections on the bench, they're all trade-offs. So like you saw last week there, they had Theo and Noel. And Noel got on the field, actually, um, and played a pretty good part in the game. But if you go, if you go with only two backs cover, there's a trade-off. Okay, you've got cover with your two tens on the field. If you put Theo as your second back, who covers your back three if there's an injury? Mm. If you put Noel as your second man, who covers the midfield if there's a centre injury? Yeah. So there's the trade-off there. So by going with that split of two backs on the field, you could be in trouble either in your midfield with a midfield injury or a back three injury. No, it could be more catastrophic if you get three backs get injured, as can happen in a game. You, can lose, you could lose a couple of backs in half a game. If you lose a third back, now you'd have put a forward in the middle of the field or a forward on the wing, and that's real trouble. Like, so the, if you could be sure you wouldn't get three injuries or you wouldn't get injuries in certain positions, you could roll that dice, but you can never be sure of these things. And you see teams taking that risk. Maybe they've got a flanker who's Pacey. pretty comfortable in certain positions or they've enough of talent across the back line. Like they maybe say Watson could go to full back, you know, in that situation, and Noel goes to the wing, you know. But then again, what if there's a injury in the centre? All these trade-offs, they have to go through them at nauseam to find out everything is covered. Because the problem now with, with benches and rugby is they're loaded up because you have to cover it. Loose head, tight head, hooker, and then you've got second row, back row. Mm. So you're down then to three backs covering effectively seven positions. So and you two of them are specialists, scrum half and a ten. But now without the ten, you know, one ten, more specialist, yeah. you know. So. It's, it's not simple, it's, you've got to thread your way through that and if you get it wrong you're an idiot and if you get it right you're a genius but you can never tell who's going to get hurt. That's fair enough, uh, Fionn Bohan, cheers Fionn for getting in contact, he says uh, how big a loss will Sonny Bill Williams be, I suppose with Ryan Crotty out now as yeah. well or it's looking very likely that he's I think out. that's the bigger picture, it's the knock on effect, you've got Ben Smith out, you've got Ryan Crotty out and you've Sonny Bill Williams out. So you've taken three key players out of their backline, mm. and their whole midfield combination. Oh, they've got to start looking at. It. And Barrett has like played two games now, but he hasn't been a first receiver for both of them for all the game. It's true. He's had to move around. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a big disadvantage to them because when he's a first receiver, they really fire better as a team. He's he just manages the game a lot better. Uh, his place kicking has been off. You know, do they bring in somebody who can kick? kick penalties better than Barrett, you know, he, this could come down to a penalty shootout in the weekend and it's going to rain again. So they've got some tough decisions in their, ba in their, in their back. I, I suspect they'll go with Fakatoa in the centre, be a straight swap in for Sonny Bill Williams. Even though he hasn't played now since, since that ill-fated game in Dublin where he scored two tries and almost beheaded Simon Zeeble. Yeah, I think, he, I think they'll still go to what's the best option for them, they'll forget about, they'll forget about Dublin. Um, secondly, I think... Um, this talk of Jordy Barrett coming in. At 15, yeah. At 15, it's a massive call. He's a very young player. It's just a, like, super rugby is super rugby, but this is a massive leap up. I just can't see them going there, taking that risk. Because if, if somebody fire, misfires at fullback, it, generally mistakes at fullback are pretty expensive. You know, you can we make mistakes. saw that William Williams' first yeah, test, of course. Yeah, like small things make, make a big impact. So I think he'll probably just go with, with Fekato in the midfield and, and play it from there. Play very aggressive. They'll, they're going to play very aggressive into the Sexton um, uh, Farrow channel. They're going to go in there. There's no doubt about it. They were going to do it last week, except Sonny Bill didn't mm. stay around for it. But you even saw late in the game, I think it was. Uh, Low Mappy, was it? Yeah, he, he got down that channel and they got a leech on him one time. 
and they went like from the 22 about 10 meters to the goal line. That yeah. was right down that channel, like looking for us straight away. Maybe he's another option as well. Apparently, like uh, Fekitola side, like Lemapa, he's never started for the All Blacks, but uh, as you said yourself, there, like he did make fairly serious yardage in a small cameo. He could go there. The only thing is, like he's never started for the All Blacks, and it seems very, like, unimportant. But actually, starting a test game is a massive difference than being on the bench. And I've seen my players, some players are fantastic bench players, but not particularly going to start. And it's almost the build-up can get to a young guy who hasn't much experience. If you're told on Tuesday, you're starting next Saturday, the whole build-up, the pressure of all that, whereas you're on the bench, it's completely different. You're going to be sitting in the stand, and then somebody goes down and you're in. You haven't time to process. You haven't, I think, you just jump in, get warmed up, on you go. And you just jump in at the deep end, and that suits probably younger players who haven't had the pressure of the build-up. So I have a feeling he might just say, look, it's going to be a steadier selection for Fekato on there. He has experience. And, well, I'm, again, we're, we're speculating based on me trying to get into sides to Steve Sanson's head. But uh, I think there are factors he left to weigh up on it. Fair enough. Uh, we've got another one here from a person, man, woman or child, called Range Rover. Cheers, Range, for getting in contact. Uh, they said, uh, do you think it's true that McGrath is in for Vunapola and that Peter Romani will be back on the bench? Actually, that was what we were going to go on to next anyway as team selection, but I think the McGrath for Vunapola call is kind of a no-brainer, and I don't even think it necessarily comes down to just the fact that Vunapola had four penalties, two at fairly crucial junctures in the yeah. game last weekend. I think just McGrath is a better scrummager. I think, oh, that's, I wouldn't disagree with all that. I think... Um, for Napola, like almost lost the test from, let's be honest. I mean, it was just crazy stuff. And in fact, you know, his clean out on Barrett, like, wasn't far away from, from what, uh, what cost Sonny Bill a red card, you know. It was, and it wasn't even a necessary clean out. Barrett was no threat to the ball. No, but it was just after he had sort of cleared Barrett out and uh, after a kick. Like, he'd only conceded a penalty on yeah, Barrett minutes before. Yeah, it was doubling down. So, look, I think there's a strong case. Apart from all the penalties, as you say, for, for Jack McGrath coming in, I think he's had a fantastic tour. I think he's an excellent scrummager, and, and the Lions were under pressure on the scrum, you know, uh, earlier in the game. So I have a feeling that that might be the best option. The temptation is not to change the team because they won, but I think if, if they're making a change, that is the one they will make. I can't see him changing. Uh, the back roll stay the same. I don't see him changing the bench unless he wants to put. Peter Romani in, but that are probably at CJ Sanders' expense mm. because maybe he wants a lino presence, uh, you know, late in the game or something. Or maybe if he does that, then you could say, well, Stander will bring you some ball carrying oomph off the bench. So what do you want at the back end of the game? Um, so I think that's that could go either way, but I, I don't see a compelling reason to change the bench. But I see a compelling reason for changing the loose head. Yeah, for sure. Like, will, would Roman Poit, being the referee for Saturday, come into that at all? Obviously, he's sort of like. I think he's almost like an overbearing father of the modern-day scrum, just standing over, demanding a lot of people, and uh, uh, maybe a bit more pernickety than a lot of his colleagues when it comes to scrum uh, playing. The French referees are, are different in the sense that they, do, they referee a different style of rugby every week in France, and they do change when they come to international level. They don't referee the top 14 like they referee international, and they make the adjustment because that's what's required. But the one area that they're pretty trenchant on is the scrum. And the scrum in France is a big deal because mm. that is always seen as a weapon of choice uh, for winning penalties. So, like top fourteen rugby scrum, first thing on the agenda, and same with with with, with uh, Prodi too. First thing on the agenda, win a penalty, stick it to the corner, maul penalty, three points. That's that's a good attacking strategy in, in French rugby. So the referees referee the scrum, and what they tend to do is they make their mind up earlier which scrum is the dominant and which is the scrum is the weaker, and they referee the game through that prism. 
So sometimes if, if you give up a couple of early penalties in the scrum, you might get penalised down the track, even though you weren't quite at fault. But the referee in his head has decided this is the dominant scrum. And they will give penalties at the scrum. They don't faff about with free kicks or warning front throws or don't do that again. It's a penalty and that's the end of it. They're very strong in that area. And they might be wrong, but that's to me they won't make the call. Yeah, big time. I think like with what we've seen in the past, uh, like I was looking back at England Australia from last summer, and there were so few scrums in the game completed at all. You know, it was a penalty either way. Well, I think players are afraid to knock on the ball because you don't know which way the penalty will go with the scrum. You know, but it, they, they are. It's a strong area for them. But the trouble is on the weekend is there could be a number of scrums because it's going to be wet again. There's going to be handling errors. It could be an area that could, you know, have a bearing on the game. Yeah, there's a. Um not for sure. Like it's going to be interesting to see how that how, how that plays out. Uh, there's still a few comments coming in here. Might put this one to Eddie. Actually, it's an interesting one from Barry Cullinan. He asks, uh, "Does Eddie feel that Sean O'Brien and Johnny Sexton are benefiting from playing more games compared to the stop-start nature of their games under the IRFU player management program?" Well, I think to be fair, that the stop-start nature of their games is not down solely to the player management program. They've been injured. <laughs> Sean O'Brien's been injured a lot, Certainly calf yeah. injuries and stuff, and Johnny has had knocks as well. So they, they probably would have played more had they not been injured. There's no doubt for a professional player getting a run of games under your belt at the high end, particularly late in the season. Like when you get to the end of the season, there's this trade off between fatigue and performance. But you can almost, if you're trying to save yourself, you can lose your edge. So you're almost better at the end of the season just going for it and mm. playing right through. And maybe in retrospect, when the see the way Johnny's season ended up at Leinster, as people felt, and I think it was a fair point that he, he maybe should have played a bit more. He was probably taken out a bit too much later in the season because we're thinking of the Lions on top of everything. But funnily enough, since he's got a run of games in the Lions, he's actually come good. We actually saw a similar thing with him four years ago. I mean, he yeah. was injury played going into the Lions tour in Australia and mm. he lasted... Yeah, it's that, it's that ultimate, again, trade-off. I mean, you want, at the end of the season, you're trying to mind players' fatigue levels, but ultimately, holding guys off, they can lose their competitive edge on the field. There's nothing like playing rugby on the field. All the training you do is never going to replicate it, so you have to go out and play. And sometimes you get a run of those games, and if you're lucky with injuries, you don't get injured and you play through, as we've seen with Sean O'Brien. This is probably Sean O'Brien's best run for a long time, but yeah. getting injured, he's on top of his game at the moment, at the end of the season. Now, you could argue... Yeah, some of the rest he got during the season has given him that fuel in the tank. That's what you could talk about. But in my experience, when players get a run of games where they're not injured and are able to play, they get better and better and better. And that's when you want guys in form at the end of the season. And that's what we're seeing now with Sexton and O'Brien, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Mark Stembridge asks... Uh, we've kind of touched on this already, but actually it's still an interesting question. Can you see anyone outside of the 23 from last week getting into the squad for the third test? Now, we've, we've sort of spoken about the squad, but are there any candidates? I mean, Ian Henderson impressed for well, 70 of his 80, uh, 70 of 80 minutes well, against the Hurricanes, but then you see Courtney Nawes do quite well when he came on last week. It's difficult to make a case for surprised. him. I'd be surprised because everyone said after Henderson's performance he should have been in the 23. He didn't make it in. He's had no other opportunity to, to reprove that. You know, there's not, mm. there's nothing. I don't think anything changed in Warren Gatlin's mind from last week regarding Ian Henderson. He knew what he was going to get from, him and he still didn't pick him. I don't, I don't think anybody that went in there last week. They said, "Oh, Henderson's going to do a better job than him." You never know, but I, I don't think there's any evidence that you think he would change his mind on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, Kieran Prendergas asks, uh, "Can the Lions consider themselves lucky in terms of their relative lack of injuries, or would the likes of uh, Billy Vunipola, Ben Youngs, and Stuart Hogg made a big difference?" 
I think Billy Van Apollo would have made a big difference. He was the one guy that the, that New Zealand didn't want to see on the plane, and um, he could have been he could have been the difference between winning the first test and not winning the first test. You know? Yeah. Uh, because definitely, he, I think if you talk to people in New Zealand, they tell you that's he was the one player that they felt could could be a game changer for the Lions, and then he didn't make it. Uh, so I think they do a sorry relief on that one. But other than that, no, I think he's the one guy that would have would have uh, would have made a difference, and maybe. You know, the series could be over now if he had played in the first test. You know, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, like, how kind of? I suppose he's after becoming a bit of a forgotten man in a sense because had this remarkable Six Nations and has been on this unbelievable run, and then you kind of think all of a sudden the lines are a little bit short at fullback when he goes home, and Liam Williams kind of explodes onto the scene. Well, but I, he's been threatening it for a while. I well, guess, I with think Williams. I've been watching Williams all season, and I thought he's been he's been outstanding for Clinetley. He's been outstanding for Wales. I always felt it's going to be very hard. From once he got on the plane, not to have him in the test side, and some it's somewhere in the back three. He's very versatile. He can play fullback, and he can play. He's a very smart footballer. Um, his big pension that sometimes is he, he he's his discipline lets him down now and again. But his form this year has been outstanding. I mean, even in the Pro 12 final, he was outstanding. So he's a form guy, and he's a great footballer, and he's kind of at the peak of his powers. I mean, it's no shock that Saracens have signed him. They see a lot in him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one more question, if you don't mind, Eddie, before we get a prediction from you. Uh, I'm hoping for a more positive one than last week. But uh, a person called Ja, J-A-H, uh, asks, uh, what are your thoughts on the Munster coaching situation at the moment? Uh, it's not looking great for them, it'll have to be said. I think the massive challenge for Munster now is to thread their way through this transition to a new coach and try and hold everything in place. I think... It's the worst possible time for this to happen to them because in most scenarios when a coach says I'm leaving in six months, you say, right, you might as well leave now and mm. let's get on with the next stage. Munster can't do that for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is it's a very expensive exercise for Munster to let Erasmus and Nader Bar go now. Uh, but even if they had the resources to do that, and is that they don't have anybody to take over now. There's pre-season starting, I think, in next week. In fact, if it hasn't started already in some shape or form. So... They have nobody actually to take over now, even if, if the two boys jumped in a plane in the morning. It's a bit of a disaster. So now what they do is they've got to go out and find somebody. Assuming they find somebody, that could take, realistically, two or three months. They're going to the market very late. Um, if they found somebody in November or October at the earliest, uh, how does that transition happen during the season? When does that person come in? They've got to set out their stall, their philosophy, their way of doing things. This is in the middle of a season. Uh, at what point does the batting could change hands. Does it change hands at Christmas when, you know, Razzie gets on the play and does it happen, you know, when the new coach arrives and October's available, is there a slow passing in the batting or is it like that's a nightmare. I yeah. mean how does that work? And no the point is how does everything hold together around that? And it's very I mean once you're facing a massive, massive challenge in this area is how they transition to a new coach in mid season. It's uh, it's a very difficult thing to do, uh, without some sort of problems and maybe they can do it if they do it it'll be a hell of an achievement because where Munster have got probably to be fair to, to, to Rasmus they overachieved last year if you told Munster supporters this time last year you'll get to the semi-final of Europe and you get to the final of the Pro 12 they'd have bit your hand off but they did so the expectations now that that's, that's, the, that's the baseline now we maybe go further if Razzie was staying but even if I'm leaving now we should be in that realm it's going to be hard to stay there with that sort of change going on and the danger for them is they slip back and they lose a season. Um, and hopefully they won't, but the challenge to do that is huge. And there is a bit of, I suppose, a bit of anger out there because now 
you know, Rasmus said in April, I'm definitely staying. And then three months later, he says, I'm definitely leaving. And the problem is, is, is if, if Munster knew this three months ago, they could probably have a coach you now to take over from Erasmus for the pre-season. Like, in fairness, Connacht have got their business done. Mm. It didn't help them, though, <laughs> last Christmas. But having said that, a new coach would have had a pre-season. That's off the table now for Munster. So I can understand a little bit of anger that he gave him his word in April and then he changed it again, you know, three months later. But it's done and dusted now. It's not going to change. They probably have to stay with him until they find somebody. But for me, the, the big challenge for Munster is to thread their way through that labyrinth of, of coaches changing over or handing the bat in the middle of a season and try and keep everything on the field working well. Maybe they can do it, but it's the last thing they need at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Like, like, is there a case to be made, given that they are still under contract until Christmas, as you mentioned, that you could maybe bring in somebody almost as an understudy or have them in more like um, advisory roles where you could no. smooth over that transition? I'm talking nonsense, am I? Really, well, yeah, because they, you need whoever comes in has to take over. So, like, they've got to find a head coach who wants to put his stamp on the team. Like, in fairness, Erasmus put his stamp on this team. Everyone knew what they were about. You might disagree with their tactics at times. That's not the issue. The issue is that he put a stamp on the team. The next person in has to do the exact same thing. Mm. He wants it on his way. This is how we do it. And every coach does that. You know, you don't want somebody coming in who's like wishy-washy and what they want. What players want is definitive actions. That's what we're doing. So, at what point do you flip the switch there between the new coach and, and, and Erasmus? Normally, it's easy doing the off-season. You draw a line in the sand and you get on. In the middle of a season, that's very difficult. That's my maybe worry for Munster. Hopefully, they can pull it out some way, but I'll tell you what, it ain't going to be easy. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's finish on a more positive note then, Eddie. What's going to happen this Saturday in Eden Park, do you reckon? I think, interestingly, I'm more upbeat this week. Not because the Lions won last week in a sense the way they won. Okay. Apart that, I think the fact that they got a result, there's massive pressure back on the All Blacks. Massive, massive pressure because, like, if they lose this game to the Lions, it changes the perception of their brand. It changes the invincibility thing about them. It also probably takes a little bit away from everything they've achieved up to now. You know, they are vulnerable. And um, whereas they win on Saturday, everything goes back to playing sailing, you know, and everyone says, oh, yeah, so the Lions won one because of, you know. But that puts massive pressure on Lions, which is a little bit inexperience in the middle of the field. This is an area that they normally don't have too many issues in. Yeah. So they're not firing on all cylinders. Uh, the stakes are very high. and. Pressure can tell, and, and no matter who you are, pressure can tell. So I think that in this case, I'm a little more optimistic. I think the pressure could tell on on the, on, uh, on the All Blacks. It could be enough to give the Lions the edge. And if that midfield doesn't gel, whatever midfield they go for, um, that could be the difference at the end of the day. Well, I like the sound of that compared to uh, this day last week or whenever it was anyway. But that is all we've got time for on the Rugby Show on the 42.e. Eddie, thanks so for joining us. We'll speak to you again soon. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with Murray Kinsler, who is still locked in a basement, I think, from last week. We'll get him out eventually. Looking forward to the chat with Murray. Thanks to you guys for watching and for all of your comments as well. They were great. Uh, until tomorrow, take it easy.